the box meet people through their music with Ash Bertabez on FBI massive thanks to Stephen for another morning of excellent tunes he's fist pumping over here it's fine my guest today made a massive career transition which thousands or perhaps millions of people are very grateful for she started off as a media lawyer and she represented shock jock Alan Jones in the cash for comment scandal and also the boxer Kostjetsu then she left that world to make other worlds. She became a writer, an award-winning best-selling author of young adult fiction, feeling sorry for Celia, finding Cassie crazy, A Corner of White are just some of her books, which are read widely here in the US, the UK, and Latin America. It's Jacqueline Moriarty. Thank you so much for coming on Out of the Box. Thank you so much for having me. And what kind of, what kind of tunes can we expect over the next hour? Oh, a um, big variety. It was very, well, I don't know. Is there a variety here? I don't There's know. a massive it's, variety, I think. Okay, good. It was very, very, very difficult to choose. I think I, I came up with about 60 songs, so it's lucky I didn't have more time or I would have come with 300. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, probably, I probably tried to choose story, uh, songs that had stories attached um, or that were important to me, and they're also favourites. And through that massive process of elimination, we ended up with a song by the National, Blood Buzz Ohio. And how does how does this fit into your life? Well, I I love the National, but this the National have been really important with the trilogy that I've been writing in the last seven years. I've been writing a fantasy trilogy, and music is always important to me with my writing because um, I don't I don't listen to music while I'm writing because then I would just stop writing and start singing along with it. Um, <laughs> but I always listen to a little bit of music before I start writing so to put me in a certain mood and with uh, with these books because they were a fantasy series it seemed even more important than usual to make sure I got the emotional dimension right and so whenever I had a sad scene or a serious scene I listened to the national because I think they seem to to work on a profound emotional level so it seemed to give a human dimension Absolutely. to the characters like a very me. yeah very literary kind of band I exactly guess. yeah and so this is blood buzz ohio on fbi 94.5 
Ohio in a swarm of bees I never Buzzer higher on FBI 94.5 by the National. Board in by my guest today, Jacqueline Moriarty. Thank you so much for bringing that great track in. It's a pleasure. Thank you for playing it. <laughs> Most welcome. And so you, you're a writer, but originally you kind of you started studying a law kind of track trajectory in your life, and that took you all the way through doing masters at Yale and doing a PhD at Cambridge. What was that like doing a PhD at Cambridge in, in law? It seems quite prestigious and fancy it was great it was beautiful have you been to Cambridge never. before it's a beautiful it was amazing I was constantly amazed at the three years that I was there I never stopped loving daffodils and buildings and trees and things like that <laughs> and being able to get a train to um, Paris for the weekend but I did I always wanted to be a writer from when I was small when I was six I, I come from a family of six kids and most of the kids in the family like to write stories so our dad would um, instead of giving us pocket money would commission us to write stories so that was the way you made money around my house um, but when I finished so I grew up wanting to be a writer but when I finished high school I knew now I have to have a sensible career so I did a law degree and when I finished the law degree I realized now that meant that I had to become a lawyer which is something that probably should have occurred to me before I started <laughs> doing the law degree. I made a terrible mistake. I've made an error. So I went overseas to study more law, basically to put off becoming a lawyer for as long as I possibly could. And when you were studying law, you, you kind of went down this, this family law and this media law track, just like these, these parallel lines of why did you end up doing those particular types of law? What led you there? Well, I'd always been interested in media law because of the writing element of it and the um, I was really interested in freedom of expression, freedom of speech and privacy rights. So I was fascinated by media law, copyright and intellectual property. They'd be my subjects. Um, but yeah, With family law, where, where did that idea come to you from? Family law came from, um, in my family, my mother fostered babies um, for years and years, for about 20 years. She fostered about 50 babies, so... And babies were her area of expertise. And so we'd get babies who had been abused or neglected come to live with us. And we'd see the many different ways in which families could be broken and the ways that the law would get it wrong. We had we had one baby who'd, who was six months old and her mother had been um, put in prison for shoplifting. And she'd only shoplifted to get things for the baby. And the baby had never been apart from the mother, but she'd been sent to prison for six months. And this poor little baby was in our home and terrified and in a state because suddenly she had separated from her mother and other babies who were born with heroin addictions and so I just it was difficult not to become interested in family law and the way the law treats these situations and to get angry and so that's how I got interested in family law and then I tried to put them together when I did my PhD by writing about the intersection between media law and family law. 
And how does that pan out in terms of a PhD? What did you kind of unearth? Um, I completely forget. It seemed it seemed so important at the time. I felt like I was yes, unearthing something <laughs> remarkable. But I think what I I what I was looking at was cases that tried to solve the issue of things like our teenagers' right to self-expression and a teenager's right to privacy. And the thing that I found interesting was that the cases seem to um, the decisions seem to depend upon which perspective the court took. If the court said this is a family law issue and in family law the right of the child is paramount, um, one decision would be made. But if the judge said this is a media law case and in media law freedom of expression is paramount, then that result would... Um, Not favour the child, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what I found interesting, that it was a matter of classification, uh, how they categorised it that led to the result. So... Yeah. That was something to come up with for thesis. <laughs> and uh, we've got a track to take from Jane Sibbery, who's someone I've never heard of before. Can you tell me how you came across Jane Sibbery? Sure. I had a, um, when I went to Yale, I brought some of my music from home with me, including a movie soundtrack from the movie Until the End of the World. You know that movie? Anyway, one of the songs on it um, I was was a Jane Sibbery song. I didn't know that myself. I was just listening to this soundtrack one day. And this is when I was studying at um, Yale. I, did I say I did a master's at Yale in America? And the, I was so in, prestigious. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was in student housing, and the girl in the room next door to me happened to be Canadian. And one day she came and knocked on my door and said, I can hear Jane Sibbery playing through the walls. Why is an Australian listening to Jane Sibbery? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about because I didn't know who I was listening to. But she said, yes, she's Canadian and I love her. And she said, now we are going to go on the train to New York and we're going to buy you some more Jane Sibbery CDs. And she's very, <laughs> she was a very dominant personality. So we went to New York and bought a few Jane Sibbery CDs and I really liked them. And then after Yale, when I finished the Masters there, that's when I went to Cambridge to do the PhD. And while I was doing the, um, while I was there, I was in student housing there too. And I happened to be listening to the Jane Sibber, a Jane Sibbery CD one day, and there was a Canadian boy who lived downstairs from me. And he came up the stairs, knocked on the door, and said, "What's an Australian doing listening to Jane Sibbery? That's Canadian. Jane Sibbery's Canadian." Anyway, so we started talking, and I ended up marrying him. So <laughs> that's my Jane Sibbery story. Um, it's a true story too. I sent that email. I sent it to Jane Sibbery once, actually, in an email. I told her, "Look." What happened? Look what you did. <laughs> she didn't answer. I think maybe she didn't have anything to say about it. Just, okay, good on you. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure sorry, it made a day. <laughs> probably did, yes. All right, and it's called Love Is Everything on FBN 94.5. To learn not to lie 
Love is everything on FBR 94.5. It's a Jane Sibbery track. And my guest today, Jacqueline Moriarty, brought that one in because she did find love in Cambridge when she was studying there. And the Canadian just down the stairs came and knocked on her door and said, are you listening to Jane Sibbery? And so what what happened once you once you two met? Uh well, we were both doing PhDs, so we finished our PhDs. Um, we both wanted to be writers and Actually, by the time I, I, while I was there in Cambridge, I realized, because I've been studying law for a long time, I realized once I finish this PhD, um, there's going to be nothing left to do except go home and become a lawyer. So I made a secret pact with myself that I would not be allowed to go home until I was a published writer. So while I was there um, doing the PhD, I also wrote a book for young adults, um, for teenagers, called Feeling Sorry for Celia. And when I'd finished it, I sent it out to um, some London publishers, and they all sent it straight back to me saying, no, thank you. What does that even feel like when you get, you know, you put all your effort into writing a book and then people send it back to you? Well, it's funny that you ask that because everybody, everybody knows that you are going to be rejected. Everybody tells you they're going to say no, but 
every time I said, it always made me cry. Every time it was, I was a shock. What, you don't want to publish my book? But it happens to, I think it usually happens to people. So, but I was never tough about it. I was always heartbroken each time because I'm so, I'm ridiculously optimistic. I just thought each time, now my dream's going to come true. And then I didn't. So I sent it out over and over and over again to about 20 publishers and 20 literary agents in London. And they all sent it back. And by then I'd finished my PhD and I ran out of money and my visa had expired and um, I think it turned out a secret pact with yourself not to go home until you're a published author is not a legitimate grounds for extension of a <laughs> visa. It's so, also terribly optimistic. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm preposterous. So I, end, I did end up going home and I took the Canadian downstairs with me and uh, we got married and I got a job as a lawyer and I took my um, manuscript of Feeling Sorry for Celia to work with me when I was a lawyer and I put it in the corner of my office. And, and was this the this office that you're working at as a lawyer? Is this during the time that you were representing Alan Jones in the Cash for Comments scandal? It is, yes, exactly. I worked as a lawyer for five or six years and he was one of the clients, yeah. which is funny that he was one of the clients. Um, yeah, so I worked on the Cash for Comments scandal and uh, a few other cases with Alan Jones um, and he was always charming to me. But it was funny, I always thought it was funny because my dad used to listen to Alan Jones when he used to drive us to school. He'd be listening to Alan Jones in the car and I couldn't stand it. I was always fighting with everything Alan Jones had to say on the radio and then I'd end up getting into arguments with my dad over it and we'd have all these debates. I'd get angry and angry with Alan Jones and... Um, one day my dad said, you're actually quite good at this. You should become a lawyer, I think. So that's partly why I became a lawyer. So it was just funny that that that's ended amazing. up, he ended up being a client. So yeah. Could I ask you, what's it like, what kind of what kind of intellect is Alan Jones? What's it like having to represent him and, and deal with him on a daily basis, I assume? He was, it was, the thing that I found interesting about him was that I... He, he was always charming and he's very bright but the thing I found interesting was that I had always assumed his on-air personality was a persona that he adopted for radio but he has exactly the same personality in real life. I find that really interesting, yeah. So, I kind of thought that it must be you know, partially scripted. Exactly, that's what yeah. I thought too so I found that fascinating but it was it was him which in a certain, it's impressive, isn't it? So yeah. It's real. It takes a lot of energy I would have thought. Exactly. And... So you ended up on the Sydney Morning Herald front page as part of that camp. How did that happen? How did that pan out? Oh, that's right. I thought about that. I think I think it was a um, maybe it was the Telegraph, but yeah, oh, well, it might have been the Herald as well. It was a few just because there was so much media coverage of that of that hearing. So there were always cameras around everywhere we went. So I was walking along with Alan Jones, and I happened to get into the photograph because I was beside him, and they put that on the front page of the Telegraph, and I know my family. Were all proud and excited that I was on the front page of the telly but I remember going into work the day that that was on um, had been on the front page and everybody was angry all my friends were angry because um, they'd heard Wendy Harmer that morning talking about it on the radio and she'd been saying why how come we always see pictures of Alan Jones with 20 something PAs <laughs> walking beside him and so all my colleagues were outraged saying they are assuming you're a, P a personal assistant and you're a lawyer that's ridiculous and I remember secretly thinking oh I was just really happy because I was 30 something and she had called me 20 something so <laughs> thank you Wendy exactly <laughs> yeah. So just just for background, the Cash for Comments scandal was, you know, 2GB was kind of embroiled. John Laws and Alan Jones had been delivering advertisements that they had been paid for, I guess, secretly by Qantas and Telstra, etc. And then they didn't really disclose that they were advertisements. So it just kind of sounded like they were saying, ah, oh, yes, I really like Qantas or whatever. And is that like, what did you end up finding in the court case? How did you end up, how did that pan out and what was the verdict in the end? I I have to be careful. Not he was a client, so I don't want to um, talk too much about that. I shouldn't talk too much about that. I think the funding, it it was a commercial um, radio inquiry. They they found that people should. Uh, I mean, it resulted in new rules being made about disclosure of agreements that you have. It was sponsorship agreements and I think it had been the practice in radio for a while that people had these sponsorship agreements and listeners didn't know about them so they changed the rules as a consequence of that inquiry which is a good thing I think. I find that really interesting that you can't necessarily talk quite freely about it even to this day. What kind of things you know, as a lawyer are you restricted long term talking about a case or once it's over can you speak about it freely? I think yeah well 
things are, that are on the public record you can speak about, but there's always uh, client confidentiality and so things that clients both told me directly um, then I couldn't talk about, but most of the cases are then in the public domain, so I probably could talk about them. I just, I'm sure I could talk about the Alan Jones case. I just don't want to accidentally start saying, start gossiping about things that I shouldn't <laughs> be talking about. Yeah, and then I guess you got a lifeline out of that world of law by getting your book published. And, and what happened after you got your first book published? Well, I think um, the law firm that I was working for, they were fantastic because because I was in the media law section, they were all secretly artists and writers themselves and I, I was working with concert pianists and um, artists and my, the partner I worked most directly with had a secret passion for magic. I remember one day on a Friday him saying, I think I'm, there's a there's a magician's convention in Portugal tomorrow. I think I'm actually going to fly to it. And he <laughs> did. He got a plane ticket and went to Portugal. So they really, they were great at encouraging and supporting me. I got, um, yeah, I put the manuscript of feeling sorry for Celia on the floor of my office when I first started work as a lawyer it was still there a year later because I was just too busy to work on it and then I decided I'd just try sending it out one more time and I found an agent in Sydney who found publishers all around the world and then I wrote the second book uh, while I was a lawyer but that was because they were such a good group of people and they did things like let me take unpaid leave and and uh, six-week breaks so that I could go and work in a cottage in the mountains and things like that. So then I wrote my second book. After that, I went to um, Montreal with my um, Canadian husband and, and... And the next song that we have is from that time, and it's Tinder Sticks. Can you, see, can you tell me how that fits into your life? Sure. Montreal, Montreal was extremely cold in the winter, minus 35, minus 40, so, and so much snow the car would be buried and all you would see was little side mirrors sticking out. And uh, So we would spend winters inside. We lived in this beautiful old um, building with old stone walls and open fireplaces. And so I remember one winter we spent the winter drinking red wine and watching The Sopranos, and it was while we were watching The Sopranos that... Uh, a song came on over the end credits that we really um, liked and we looked it up and found out it was by a band called The Tinder Sticks and we bought lots of Tinder Sticks albums. So now um, every time, and we listen to them all through that winter, so now every time I hear them I think of um, the snow, moonlight on the snow through the window, that kind of thing. So, And this one I like because it's a duet with Isabella Rossellini and... I think they're from green porno. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. What can't you do? All right, on FBI 94.5, my guest today, Jacqueline Moriarty, and this track is Tender Sticks, Marriage Made in Heaven. She fell in love with my sin. She knew the best I could ring. She thought there was a But me, I just live for the cloud. With a 
Still the fire of the love is true 
have the novelist Jacqueline Moriarty in the studio today on Out of the Box. My name's Ash Berdebez and it's really it's really good to have a novelist who's a, you know a career novelist in the studio because I haven't really met any people who can make a living off writing in my life. <laughs> and you've been working on a trilogy and you've just released one of the books from that trilogy. Can you tell us a bit about what that feels like to get part 2 of a trilogy off your chest? Sure, it's uh a little, a little bit strange, because I, I actually just part two of the trilogy just came out, but I just finished writing the third book in the trilogy, so that won't come out till next year. But uh, to finish, so I've been working on it for about seven years, and before that, um, the idea came to me for the trilogy when I about um, ten years ago. So I've had it in my mind for a very long time. So to finish writing something that's been a big part of my life for a long time is is weird but but amazing too yeah and how did that idea first start getting put on paper um it came to me when i was living in montreal in canada i was before before i wrrote this trilogy i'd written um ashbury the ashbury books they're called feeling sorry for celia and finding cassie crazy books about high schools in sydney and i was working on one of those books when i was living in montreal and i went to a cafe and it was in the winter and to me as a Sydney girl it never stopped being magical the snow and ice I used to go ice skating every day outside on a pond and I just never for the years that I was there I never stopped finding it incredible and so one day I was in this cafe having a chocolate croissant and uh, I, I had a chocolate croissant and so it smelled like chocolate and cinnamon and there was um, snow and ice through the window and I found myself instead of working on the book I was supposed to be working on drawing pictures of a kingdom and I called it the kingdom of cello just because I liked the word cello and <laughs> I drew pictures of a lake of spells where you could fish and dive for spells and a butterfly child so small she can fit into a locket that kind of thing and then I put it away and forgot about it for years except that it stayed in the back of my mind that one day I'd like to write about the kingdom of cello so years later when I was back in Sydney and um, I came back to Sydney and had a baby and then my marriage broke up when the baby was just a few weeks old so that was a, st- a strange and difficult time. Yeah, that seems pretty full on. I was, yeah, it was a bit extreme. Um, but also kind of, well, not good. Not good in any way, but the good thing was that I was had decided I'm going to write a um, fantasy trilogy. Um, I'm going to write a fantasy series, and I usually write in cafes. I go to cafes, so I had my baby with me in my pram. I was Hold writing Hold the phone. Hold the phone. Ex- JK Rowling. Exactly. <laughs> getting Thank those vibes. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought. It was funny because nobody else seemed to notice that. I kept telling people, I'm writing a fantasy th- series and I go to cafes and my baby's in the pram, thinking somebody make the connection. And then one, <laughs> one day I was in a cafe and um, doing my writing and a man at a nearby table leaned over and said, are you the next JK Rowling? And I was, it was ridiculous. I said, finally, and how did you know? And this poor guy was backing away from me with this panic in his eyes. I always thought that was really, he was really handsome too. It was a stupid thing to do. I regretted that. Anyway, so that's how I, I and um, so it's a, a fantasy that is set partly in Cambridge, England, and partly in the kingdom of Cello, and it's about um, a girl in a 15-year-old girl in our world who starts writing letters to a boy in the kingdom of cello through a crack that opens up between worlds in a parking meter. Is it kind of terrifying to start a trilogy knowing full well that you're committing yourself to at least three books that you might not necessarily know how they're going to pan out? It's a good question. It is scary. At first, actually, I wanted it to be five books. That was my idea, and I was I don't even know what the word is for that. Yeah, I know. So I just said a five-book, yeah. yeah we'll just go for a trilogy then, too hard. Thank you. My, um, exactly, because I don't know the word. My publisher, American publisher said, why don't you try a trilogy? Because I think he was aware of, he was conscious of that big investment um, to get into. And I was glad, because I had to... I, planned, plotted the entire trilogy before I started, so I thought I had it all figured out, but when I came to write the third book last year, I realised that my plan for book three had a lot of square brackets in it where I had written notes like uh, for things like make something extraordinary happen here where it all comes together. <laughs> and then I got, I, so I'd be telling everyone, I've got it all planned out. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. I was all, so I felt quite secure. But then I, I was going to kill my former self. I was so mad at myself for that. Anyway, but I did you it. You can't send that in as a manuscript. Here's where the good things exactly. happen. <laughs> exactly. 
extraordinary, beautiful moment. So the last thing that we played was from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. It's called Breathless, and that was from the time in your life when you came back to Sydney from Canada and had the kid and had and went through the breakup and was writing. And you you said that a reader sent you some fan mail, fan mail, and that that song was on a, a mix CD that they made for you. Well, sometimes readers send me mix CDs. I love it when they do that. Um, but and this one in particular, it came at an important time because I was I was going through a very difficult time, and it was a lovely letter she wrote. Um, fan mail's always nice. I never I never get tired of fan mail. But it was a lovely letter. Jacklemoriadiohomo.com. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, it was a lovely letter and and a great mix. I really liked all the music, so I listened to that a lot. And I, I'm sure she didn't realize that how important it was to me. But I listened to it over and over, and it was very soothing. And then one day I lost the mix CD, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I was very upset, and I decided I'm going to start tracking down all the songs that were on it. So I was buying them on iTunes and that kind of thing. But I had really liked the Nick Cave one, um, that that one, and I couldn't find it on iTunes. I couldn't find it anywhere. And one day I went into a. Um, the reason I brought it in today and. Um, it's because of this. I went into a um, a record shop and was asking them if they knew if they had that song on a CD or if they knew where I could find it. And they were really nice. They were searching, searching, searching for me and they couldn't find it anywhere. They ended up giving up. But just on the counter of the shop, I saw there was a new Cat Power CD and I like her. So I just picked it up without really looking at it and said, oh, I'll just buy this one. And I took it home and that night I was playing it and the very last song on the CD turned out to be her cover of The Breathless Song by Nick Cave. So That's crazy. I I know. It was ridiculous. Exactly. So you do get emails and letters from from fans and young fans all the time. And I've read somewhere that you you said you get beautiful and often heartbreaking letters. What do you mean by heartbreaking? Oh, people... I think people send... um, I, I think often... Uh, people when they are going through a difficult time will send letters to favorite writers and so i've I hear from really unhappy teenagers all over the world uh, and they're heartbreaking because they're going through really difficult times they also I also get letters from people who are studying my books at school and not they're not so much letters as emails where they say um can you please tell me what the themes and give me the themes and an outline of characters <laughs> for each of your books and I need it by Thursday, please. Um, and they're also a bit... One of my favourite ones said... Uh, a 15-year-old girl wrote to me and said, I'm writing to tell you I think you are absolutely awesome. I adore your books. And then on the next line she said, but don't let it go to your head. And, <laughs> and she said, couldn't she? started talking about this other writer who's better than me. She said, she puts all of you in your place. So... <laughs> Did you end up reading that writer? Was it was it a pretty? I did. I went. I went straight to the library. What are you talking about? She's better than me. (laughs) She was pretty good, but still, I still thought I don't know. She puts me in my place. (laughs) Please. And so we've got a track by Arcade Fire called Sprawl Two Mountains Beyond Mountains. And why did you want to play this song? I chose that one because I think I was talking earlier about music being important to me when I'm writing and. I like to choose one of the things that I do. I use music to put me in a certain mood for writing, but I also like to choose a song for each of my characters. And then to get into character, I listen to that song. And um, so for the the girl in the book is called Madeline, and the boy is called in the trilogy is called Madeline. The boy is Elliot, and Elliot's each um, their favorite song changed for each of the books in the trilogy. I think as they changed and developed themselves, and in the first book, Madeline's song was this one, Mountains Beyond Mountains. I felt like um, it captured some of the suppressed passion she was feeling. And in the last book um, that I just wrote, I chose Mumford and Sons. Um, anyway, for Elliot, but but um, Arcade Fire's Madeline's song. Lovely. And you're listening to Out of the Box with me, Ash Bertabez, and my guest today, Jacqueline Moriarty, who's brought in a great track by Arcade Fire for you.
Arcade Fire on FBI 94.5, brought in by my guest today, Jacqueline Moriarty, who has written such books as Feeling Sorry for Celia, Finding Cassie Crazy, and A Corner of White from the the Colours of Madeline trilogy. Actually, you looked up, you kind of researched a lot about the science of colour when you were coming up with the Colours of Madeline trilogy. What kind of stuff, what interesting stuff did you find when you were researching colours? I did, I loved, I probably read far too much about colours. The reason I read about colours was because uh, I decided... Oh, should I tell you why I decided Absolutely. this? Um, I I was working on this idea that I had for a trilogy about a kingdom called the Kingdom of Cello, and I was in a cafe, and um, a friend happened to stop by the table and ask me what I was working on. And I always work with lots of um, different coloured pencils and textures, so I would I draw pictures when I'm planning what I'm going to do next in the book and um, draw maps of cello and that kind of thing. Anyway, so this friend asked me about what I was working on, and... He said he's a filmmaker and he just finished making a horror movie and he said, so what are your monsters? Um, he said you can't have a kingdom without monsters. <laughs> so I looked down and I had all these coloured textures and pencils on the table and I decided that my monsters should be colours, um, which doesn't really make sense um, until you start researching colours, I think, and then I thought it makes perfect sense because when you think about it, colour is really just pieces of of flying energy because colour comes from the sun. It's the visible part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's if you if you split that visible part, which is light, into pieces and it hits objects, that's how you get colour. So in a sense, it's energy itself. So the more I researched it, the more I thought that colours could come to life. And, um, well, not technically. What's a good example of one of the ways in which colour could come to life using your research? It's a, yeah, it's a good question because I, it's not making much sense, is it? Um, no, absolutely doesn't. In the, in, the, in the books, I have different colours take on different forms. So they're kind of like the weather. They've, um, so their dark greys are like, appear like storm clouds, and they, but they have physical strength to tear people to pieces. And pale pinks come misting in and they do and they do something like bring out the beauty and everybody's smile and little jumping colors yellow lemon yellow comes like flying darts and blinds people that kind of thing um so i looked into things like the psychology the science of color which is how i got interested in isaac newton because he was really into color and i also looked at things like um auras so I went and got my aura read oh yeah what did they say (laughs) and it was funny because the first thing she did before she read my aura was read my card tarot tarot card she said we'll do this first it's part of the aura reading and I didn't I was really skeptical I had told her beforehand I'm a writer I'm doing this for research but I'm open-minded too so I'm then she was reading my tarot and she was shuffling there, shuffling, shuffling, shuffling the cards and then she found the card for creative writing and we both went, wow, that's amazing. And then I thought, wait a minute, she did a lot of shuffling and she did a lot of pointing things out in the room while she was doing that so I was quite, still quite sceptical and then she took another card which, and she said, oh, this shows that you have great prosperity coming up and then I decided, okay, I believe every word this woman <laughs> says and yeah, and she read my and she, she didn't so much read my aura as heal my aura, she said. You had a broken aura. What happened to it? it? Uh, Apparently everybody's aura is broken and mine is now partially healed. It's not completely healed because we ran out of time to heal it completely. But oh, no. So it back. costs more to I have a fully healed. I had to come back for a series of treatments. Yes, yeah. exactly. I'm sceptical. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was wondering, you, you write about, you know, for young adult fiction, you're often writing about high school-aged kids. How do you stay in touch with, you know, high school-aged children and what's happening at, in that era? And, you know, how do you create credible portraits, I guess, of, of younger folk? It's a good question because it's a difficult, uh, it's a challenging, interesting, I find it interesting because on the one hand you could, I could research by going into high schools and and reading up on people's Facebook pages and looking at the internet and listening. I do a lot of listening into conversations of teenagers. I do do that. Um, <laughs> in cafes and on buses, I ride buses around specifically so I can listen into teenagers. Um, but the the dangerous thing about that is you can get information about a certain group of teenagers or and at a certain time period and then by the time the book comes out everything will have changed so I don't want to make it too contemporary I don't want to be too accurate mm-hmm. so it's more important to me to uh, almost to remember what it was like to be a teenager and and to get and to do that and I do listen to music a lot for that reason too because certain kind of music takes me straight back to being a teenager so my second book Finding Cassie Crazy I wrote that 
after I came up with the whole plot after listening to a placebo album because for some reason placebo puts me back into my teenage mind. So I do I do a lot of listening to teenagers and talking to teenagers as much as I can, but it's more I feel like it's more important to get to to remember how it is to be a teenager. What are the more recent things you've been hearing from teenagers? <laughs> I can I um one interesting thing is it's really hard to listen into boys. That's what I that's what I find. They don't seem to get together and chat as much as girls do. Have you noticed that? I have noticed. I, yeah, yeah, it's funny. So I, I'm always, boys are always a wonderful enigma. I remember one day being in a shopping centre and a big group of guys, teenage boys, sat down near me and I had a notepad and pen out and I was so happy because they were all chatting together and they look like really bad boys. They look like wild boys. They had tattoos and earrings and mohawks. I thought this is going to be perfect. I'm going to get so much material. They're such bad boys. And then they turned around <laughs> and saw me with my notepad and pen. Oh, sorry about that. Wait, you're working. We'll go somewhere else where we can't disturb you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was annoying. Yeah, anyway, very unbad boys. I exactly, guess. such How good polite. bad boys. Exactly. So, what kind of stuff do you really want to give to the people who read your books? Uh, that's a good question. I'm... Might be a bit obtuse. I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> it might be a bit of what? It, it was a bit of an obtuse question. No, not at all. It's not. No, not at all. What do I want to give them? I just want. Um, I try not to think too much about the readers I try I feel like it's more important to think about the story and the characters and then I try to be funny because uh, I I feel like it's important to try to be funny and I don't I don't want it to be too simplistic but I feel like happy endings are important when I was talking earlier about teenagers sending heartbreaking letters it makes me think I don't want to end anything I I don't I mean I don't want it to be saccharine but I don't want to end things in a grim um despairing way because Mm -hmm. that's the last thing you need when you're a depressed teenager I think so all right and we have one last song to take thank you so much for being a fantastic guest today Jacqueline Mario sorry I've got a hand signal coming in from my producer so um we're going to get Beth in next for lunch she's going to have two hours of tracks to play and uh, she's actually a really massive fan of yours. Like before you were coming in, she was freaking out and fanning her face and fangirling very hard. But we've got one last song from you at the moment, and it's the presets. Which track is it? Uh, I think it's called People. Mm-hmm. And why why this one? And I chose this one. This is um. Oh, the story behind this is that my little boy Charlie is seven now and he's very has a very specific taste in music he's very passionate about music and a couple of years ago when I was um putting him to bed when he was five he was telling me exactly the kind of music he likes how much guitar there should be how fast the drums should go how loud the drums should go and as he talked I said I think you might like the strokes and the next morning I played the strokes for him and he went completely wild dancing in the living room and he said from now on we have to bring the strokes every time we go in the car because it would be perfect for me to do ninja imagining so we listened to the strokes a lot. They did hold up quite well. But then luckily he he came up with a few different favourites. And a few weeks ago he came to me upset saying that he had lost his favourite song. And he said that he had come up with a new favourite song. He had chosen a new favourite song, but all he could remember of it was this little bit. And he did this wah, wah, wah. I don't remember. I can't do it exactly. And um, he kept going wah, wah, wah to me. And I didn't know what he was talking about, but I was trying to figure it out. And he was so upset. I can't remember my favourite song. But he kept singing it over and over. And then uh, we kept searching. And then the other day in the middle of the night, I thought, I know exactly what it is. And the next day I um, got out this song people by the presets and played it and he was so happy because it was his favorite song back again fantastic on fbi 94.5 thank you so much jacqueline moriarty it's a pleasure thanks for having me nope that ain't it
on FBI 94.5. I thought I'd stick around for a second because I have someone to thank because Jacqueline Moriarty, who was our guest today on Out of the Box, was suggested by Nigel Wood. He emailed in to ash at fbiradio.com saying that he thought that Jacqueline would be a great guest because she has great taste in music and is really super interesting. And by George, he was right. So thank you so much to Nigel. And if you have someone that you know of that you think would be really great for the show, feel free to get in touch on ash at fbiradio.com and do the same. But yeah, thank you so much to Jacqueline Moriarty for coming on today. And yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd like to thank Nigel Wood too for recommending me because for years I've, I've always wanted to be on a show like this and play my favourite music. So this is really, your life in music. <laughs> it is. It, although I, I did promise him that I was going to try to bring in Eradicated Pest throughout the whole show by doing things like choosing Adam and the Ants and saying, Ants, if you have an ant problem, you should call Nigel Wood. <laughs> anyway, but he's. Um, I really like the way he talked about termites. Everybody thinks I'm joking. I've been seeing him for a while, this guy, <laughs> Nigel Wood, but... Everyone, I keep saying, I like, really like him. I love the way he talks about termites. And people think I'm joking, <laughs> but I do. He's really good on termites. So. Did you get him to write it? I wrote, a, wrote a book, yeah. I want to steal his material. Yeah. Indeed. For my books, yeah. <laughs> Next, Jacqueline Moriarty about termites. Third voice in the studio here. I've crept in. Beth Dalglish taking over for Thursday lunch. But I am also very excited um, to have kept Jacqueline in the studio because I personally am a huge fan of Jacqueline Moriarty's books. And particularly uh, Finding Cassie Crazy was one of the books that I read when I was a teenage girl in high school. And as it turned out, the, the characters in the books, Cassie and Emily and Charlie Taylor are the names of three of my best friends. And when we read it, we were like, this book is for us. This book is about us. And it was it was such a part of my teenage years. So when I found out you were coming in, it was really, really exciting. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. That's so thank, a great story. Thank thanks you for so much. naming your characters after my friends. I did name <laughs> them after you and your friends. Yes, I did. Absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for coming in, Jacqueline Moriarty. And if you want to listen back to this last hour and a little bit of tunes, head to fbiradio.com and hit up the Out of the Box page. But while I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic, my next song that I'm going to play for you is a cover of the Arthur theme song by Chance the Rapper. Enjoy. Out of the Box. Meet people through their music. With Ash Bertabez on FBI.